The following podcast is brought to you by iSelect Fund. iSelect is dedicated to helping investors create a diversified portfolio of venture investments through their financial advisors. Learn how to start your own venture portfolio today by visiting iSelectFund.com. In 2009, over 600,000 people died from cancer in the United States alone. One of the primary drivers behind high mortality rates in cancer is late diagnosis. For this reason, there's increasing demand for non-invasive methods to detect cancer easily and at earlier stages. Today, we will explore and analyze different methods for non-invasive cancer detection, from the mucus in our lungs to the blood flowing through our veins and the software in our imaging systems. A few process comments. We are not soliciting investment or giving investment advice in any way whatsoever. This presentation is general industry research based on publicly available information. We've invited you to this because you are technologists, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, industry experts, early adopter customers, or sophisticated investors that are part of the iSelect network. We value your thoughts, questions, comments, and insights into this topic, and would greatly appreciate it if you could actively engage during the presentation. Thank you in advance for your attendance and active participation. And with that, I'm pleased to bring you this week's deep dive on non-invasive cancer detection. So during today's presentation, we'll go ahead and we'll be introducing our guests. Um, and then I will give a background on cancer screening. And then we'll jump right into some of the solution providers in this space. Um, and then finally, we'll, we'll finish up kind of discussing how we should look at, at investment. And great, thank you. Today we have Maria, Eric, and Chad on the line. I'm not sure if Chad has had the chance to join us yet, but Maria and Eric, if you could each give a 30-second introduction of yourself, that would, that would be great. Thank you. This is Maria Zane. I'm the CEO and President and Director at BioAffinity Technologies. My background is in, certainly in, in business and law and science. I've also worked quite a bit in the environmental field, and we have a, a wonderful company here in San Antonio that has developed being a, and, and actually will commercialize shortly, a non-invasive test for the early detection of lung cancer using sputum, using the mucus from our lungs on a flow uh, cytometric flow cytometry platform. I look forward, thank you very much for this opportunity, and I certainly look forward to talking about what we're doing here in, in San Antonio. Hi, everybody. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk today. Uh, my name is Eric Mayer. I'm the CEO of EDP Biotech in lovely Knoxville, Tennessee. We are working on a new blood test for the early detection of colorectal cancer and precancerous polyps. We are in sort of prototype and early, early stages of commercialization here, uh, working on some large collaborations as well. And my background has been in both the uh, biochemistry, bench science, early stage diagnostics, marketing, business development, administration, you name it. As many of you know, in uh, small startup tech companies, you tend to wear many hats. So thank you again for the opportunity to present today. Great, and thank you all for, for joining. Um, Chad, do you happen to be on the line? Well, if not, maybe he'll, he'll join us a little later. Um, but he's the president and CEO of Koyos Medical. Great. So kind of a little background at, at what we're looking at today. 
we kind of are looking at early detection of cancer as, as a real opportunity to improve patient outcomes and kind of channel patients to the appropriate treatments earlier with the idea that early detection and early screening really helps prevent some of these later stage cancers and, and reduce the cost in our, our healthcare system. There's kind of a strong opportunity currently due to recent advances in, in biomarker detection and liquid biopsy, as well as a lot of this kind of advances in artificial intelligence and computer science in general that, that allow us to do more sophisticated work in imaging analysis. This kind of background gives us the opportunity to really look at new ways to better screen patients for cancer. In addition, right now, a lot of the existing screening methods have high rates of false positives, which can kind of lead to great expense and, and unnecessary procedures in our healthcare system. And so today we'll really be looking at some of the solutions, especially looking at earlier detection with greater accuracy, and then looking at some, some phlegm and blood solutions that, that enable earlier detection. The idea of early detection as the best, most effective approach is really not new. As far back as 1907, the British physician Charles Child, which who is the author of The Control of a Scourge, um, observed that cancer itself is not incurable, it's the delay that makes it so, and really pushed for an early public campaign for early intervention. Some patients whose cancers are detected and treated early may have better long-term survival than patients whose cancers are not found until symptoms appear. Unfortunately, effective screening tests for early detection do not exist for every type of cancer. And for cancers for which there are widely used screening tests, some of the tests haven't yet been proven to reduce cancer mortality. There have been some important successes in screening and early detection, however. Deaths from cervical cancer in the U.S. declined substantially after annual screening with the PAP test, as well as screening for colon and breast cancer have been shown to reduce mortality from these cancers. All of this has kind of led to an increased interest in screening for cancer, either on its own or as a screen to be used before a more invasive diagnostic test. So how do we really measure the abilities of a screening tool? we really look at sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity is the percentage of patients with a disease who test positive for that disease. Specificity is the percentage of patients without a disease who test negative. And sensitivity and specificity live in a state of balance. So when you increase sensitivity, that usually comes at the expense of reduced specificity, which could mean more false positives. Likewise, high specificity, um, which again is, is a test that does a good job of ruling out people who don't have the disease, usually tend to have lower sensitivity, which can mean more false negatives, which is kind of missing patients who would actually have the disease. Screening tests in general tend to have high sensitivity to avoid missing potential disease and diagnostics tend to have high specificity so that they really understand true negatives. Cancer is really an, enorm an enormous industry. 
cancer is the second leading cause of death of leading cause of death uh, or disease behind heart disease. More than 1.7 million people have been diagnosed and in uh, 2019 alone, more than 600,000 people died. And four in 10 people in their lifetime will be diagnosed with cancer. So a little background. Recently, about two weeks ago, there was, there was an article released in Scientific American called The Cancer Industry, Hype Versus Reality. And the author, John Horgan, really dove into some of the weaknesses in the cancer industry itself. He kind of had this view that the cost of cancer care in the United States is you know, projected to be $175 billion in the U.S. this year. But he just kind of really felt that we were not seeing enough results for as much money as we put into it. One of his points was that that study from 2006 that really found that age-adjusted mortality in cancer has not changed a whole lot since 1930. So he kind of brought up concerns about, you know, how can we really improve our screening? How can we really look at, at better diagnosing and, and finding effect, effective treatments? One of his points was that false positive rates are high and leading to excess invasive biopsies which are kind of a high cost both from the perspective of the pain and anxiety that that patients face when they have false positives as well as the actual expense of increased diagnostic procedures and invasive diagnostic tests additionally he kind of pointed out the the trend of testing itself and screening can lead to kind of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. So there are actually people who can have cancers or precancerous cells that would not actually compromise their health. And treating these can they kind of call this overdiagnosis where we're, we're treating patients that ultimately they go through kind of painful procedures, but ultimately treating the cancer doesn't really would not have changed their outcomes. And one of the, the challenges with current screening methods is that a lot of the tests cannot reliably distinguish between harmful and harmless cancers. And this kind of really led me to, to dive into investigating some of the effects and costs of our, our current screening methods. And I, I'd like to cover kind of four major cancers that are prevalent and have well-known screening methods used prior to an invasive biopsy. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about prostate cancer. PSA is the prostate-specific antigen test, and it's generally a test used for men over age 50. PSA is a test that really demonstrates that trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. The standard threshold of a PSA level is set at 4 nanograms per milliliter, and the test has pretty low sensitivity of 21%, but then a high specificity of 91%. Because the test doesn't have high sensitivity, it tends to miss patients that have cancer. And in the prostate cancer prevention trial, 15% of men with PSA levels less than four annually for seven years were found to have prostate cancer at the end of their studies biopsy. In the study, they actually looked at increasing the sensitivity of the test by lowering the cutoff rate to 2.5 nanograms per milliliter. And when they kind of looked at that, they, they found that up to 6 million men in the U.S. would be defined as abnormal and indicated for a biopsy. So that really demonstrated, demonstrates the challenges of, you know, when you increase sensitivity, you really increase the number of 
sometimes false positives that, that you can run into. Overdiagnosis is also a major problem in, in prostate cancer. In one estimate, they kind of found that of 1,000 men tested, 240 would get a, a positive result indicating that they need more invasive diagnostics. Of those, 100 will get a positive biopsy showing definite cancer. And it's estimated of those 100, about 20 to 50% of those men have cancer that would never grow, spread, or harm them. Um, and of those 100, 80 choose to get surgery or radiation as a treatment, with 60 experiencing urinary incontinence or sexual impotence. Of that 1,000, three, they predict, would actually avoid the cancer spreading to other organs, and then only one or two avoid death from prostate cancer. So the, the, the kind of, there's a, a high cost associated with, with this type of screening that, that doesn't have great sensitivity. Next, I'd really like to dive into breast cancer. The standard of care is for women to begin receiving mammograms when they're over the age of 45. It's been found by the National Cancer Institute that, that false positive rates in non-invasive screening can be as high as 71%. And there was kind of some research done on, you know, what is the cost of that kind of high 71% rate? They kind of found that the cost of the, the biopsies for these false, false positives and, and additional treatments and checks that, that women undergo costs our system actually $2 billion. Um, I'm not sure if Chad joined the line, but I, I know if he had, he would kind of speak to some of the factors that make it difficult to screen for breast cancer. Well, if, if not, when I, when I spoke to him last week, some of the, the factors that he talked about, the kind of challenges with mammograms specifically is that a lot of women have kind of dense breast tissue that can easily trigger concern that it could be tumors. And so the, the, the challenge is really distinguishing between dense breast tissue and, and fatty breast tissue and, and kind of how similar that looks to, to tumors. And that's really kind of the limitations in, in mammograms are really kind of feeding into uh, high rates of, of sending women for biopsy that maybe otherwise would, would not need it. Next, I'd like to to dive into lung cancer. The standard screening method for lung cancer is to get a, a low-dose CT scan. It has pretty high sensitivity and specificity, but recently there was a study done by the VA in 2017 where they kind of looked at 2,100 patients who were high-risk um, either smokers or uh, kind of eligible for their screening based on, the, on their history and other factors. And the, 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 the study found that for, for every 1,000 people screened, 10 would actually be diagnosed with, with early stage lung cancer that could be potentially curable, and five with advanced stage lung cancer that would probably be incurable. 20 of those would undergo unnecessary invasive procedures, whether that be a bronchoscopy or a thoracotomy directly related to the screening, and 550 will experience unnecessary alarm and, and repeated CT scanning to kind of check in with them. Maria, could you 
Could you kind of talk, speak a little bit to CT as a method um, and maybe also kind of your perspective on the, this idea of, of kind of overdiagnosis in, in cancer? Yes, certainly. So low dose CT is, the, is recommended for people who are at high risk, meaning people who are 55 years of age or older and have smoked a, the equivalent of 30 pack years, meaning one pack a day for 30 years. There's an estimated 9 to 14 million people who fall into that range of being at high risk for, low, for cancer. And in 2015, low-dose CT was CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, recommended low-dose CT scans for those people at high risk. Now, I have to say low-dose CT has been shown in a national 53,000 patient study to drop the death rate um, because low-dose CT can find lung cancer and indeed find cancer, lung cancer early, but it can drop the death rate by 20%. So that's spectacular. But the issue for low-dose CT is that it has a high false discovery rate. And what that means is that what the larger trial, this 53,000 patient trial found, was that of the 100 people who are uh, diagnosed as being positive for cancer of the lung and from a low-dose CT, only four actually have the disease if you took 100 people who got a positive result. So that does, as you said, Hannah, lead to unnecessary biopsies and, and further follow-up. But I want to stress in lung that we, uh, whereas breast and prostate have a five-year survival rate of 90 and 98% respectively, lung cancer has a 19% overall survival rate. And that means that we're, we're not only not catching lung cancer early, we're not catching it. So it's, a, it's an extremely important advancement that we are starting to screen our population who are at high risk. But we need to find a, a non-invasive, and of course that's where my company comes in, method by which those people who are positive or who are suspected of cancer can get a more accurate information and, and more information from which a physician can just decide what, what is the treatment option. I'm aware of the VA study. I, I, have, I think it's a, a good study, but I, I have some issues with it. I think low dose, certainly the sensitivity and specificity of um, low dose CT in the larger national study showed much higher sensitivity in 96%, but lower specificity. Um, and as you said, Hannah, they go hand in hand. I just want to make one more comment, and that is I think there has been some quite impressive gains in treatment of late stage lung cancer with immunotherapy, not for all patients, but for some, so that the statistics that we'll see coming out of SEER in the years to come will show, I think, it, it will actually make a difference in, in what we're looking at to uh, survival in late-stage cancer. Thank you. Great. And, and Maria, thank you. Thank you for that insight. Next, I will kind of jump into colorectal cancer and colon cancer in general. Kind of the, the, the standard is generally for people to receive colonoscopy, but I think a, a lot of people 
view that as kind of an invasive, inconvenient procedure. So, so people have really been looking for screening tools that will make it a lot easier for people without any need for, for prep or otherwise. One that, that kind of became popular on the market recently is, is Colaguard, and it's a popular at-home screening tool for invasive colonoscopy that uses a, a stool sample to, to detect DNA. It, it kind of reported fairly high sensitivity and specificity, but they found around a 7% a false negative, which means that um, one out of 13 people who actually have cancer who, who use that screening kit would fail to detect, as well as one in six people who actually do the Cologuard test will, will receive a, a positive and are recommended to go ahead with the colonoscopy. And of those, 45% of those would actually be false on that colonoscopy. Eric, what do, what do you see as, as some of the, the limitations of these kind of stool sample tests? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, one of the main limitations of stool tests, whether you're talking Cologuard or a fecal occult blood test, which is uh, really the standard being used outside the United States, it's still a stool test. And so patients understandably have dif difficulty complying uh, many times. I think also when you're talking about looking for DNA in stool, let's say, or in any of these uh, sample types, you may be looking for mutations which are suggestive of disease. But as you correctly pointed out here with the cost of false positive negatives, uh, you know, having a mutation does not mean you have active disease. So this leads to high false positives. Uh, those patients will then get referred to a colonoscopy, which is invasive, of course, uh, which we're trying to, you know, potentially make sure the correct people are going. When you have a screening colonoscopy, it is the gold standard here in the U.S., and most of the time insurance will cover a, a preventive or screening colonoscopy 100%. If you instead elect to have a test like this, like a Cologuard test or a liquid biopsy, and then you're positive, and then you're referred to a follow-on procedure, uh, insurance may not cover that because it's no longer a preventive or screening colonoscopy. It's now a diagnostic procedure. And so patients could be hit with a very large bill unexpectedly. So I, you know, I think that there's healthcare costs, outcome costs, and you know, actual financial costs to the patient uh, when you're looking at technologies such as these. Great, Eric, thank you for that insight. And Chad, I believe you're actually a, a 312 number. I'm gonna go ahead and unmute you. Speak to uh, breast cancer now that we have you on the line. So on the breast cancer side, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, screening is, is reimbursed and encouraged. You know, all the statistics you provided are, are super, super important for early detection. And there's obviously tons of debates, as you mentioned, in terms of possible overtreatment. Standard of care is typically mammography, which is x-ray, 2D, and 3D. And one of the challenges there is breast density. 39 states in the U.S. have passed legislation to notify women that have denser breast tissue of the need to expand from mammography because mammography can be inconclusive and then we can miss cancers. So screening the ultrasound, automated breast ultrasound, and typical handheld ultrasound is the preferred method for expanding beyond mammography. And that's the area where we concentrate and we are increasing 
statistics, as you mentioned, and it's software that allows for increases in both sensitivity and specificity by analyzing and extracting data from ultrasound images. And we've got a massive data set, about a half a million images that we use for, for training to make that type of an impact, which is pretty powerful. Great. Thank you, Chad. So in, in general, the, the total addressable market for cancer diagnostics and their, their kind of associated screeners is found to be growing. So it's, we're looking at an 8% compounded annual growth rate between 2019 and, and 2025, with the U.S. market value predicting to reach $65 billion by, by 2025. So this is a really big area. It's really important to our health outcomes, and I'm really excited to see, see where we kind of push and move to uh, achieve this, these better screening methods. So let's jump into some of the innovators in this area. I kind of, kind of broke this down into kind of two buckets of approaches to screening. I looked at who's doing analysis on, on biomarkers, whether that be a, a liquid biopsy or other molecular biomarkers, and then also looking at, at imaging and software solutions that are, this kind of includes AI solutions that are, that are working to take existing imaging technology and, and really improve it. So first up, um, Maria would love to have you give a little background on your, your company and, and what you're doing. If, if you could do, keep it kind of between three and five minutes and then we'll all kind of follow in, follow up with questions. Certainly, thank you. So we use, uh, we analyze uh, a patient's phlegm. We, we are able to get phlegm, to get sputum as it's called, um, which comes from deep within the lungs very simply, and we use a, a simple device that Smith Medical uses uh, called an acapella. It helps to open up the lungs. You blow into it, and then simply with a PEP valve, opens the lungs, and you can produce mucus very well. We ask for a three-day sample at home. That's sent to the laboratory. At the laboratory, the sample is made into what's called a single cell suspension. You can think of all that muck. It's just, it goes, uh, we disassociate and we get a nice single cell suspension of the sample and we label it with a cocktail of antibodies and a specific porphyrin. Now porphyrins are uh, like the heme and hemoglobin can be a natural porphyrin. There are also synthetic porphyrins. Work, early work that was done at Los Alamos National Lab found that a specific porphyrin preferentially binds to cancer cells at 10 or 20% greater rate than normal cells. And indeed, this specific porphyrin is a fluorescent. So when you looked under a microscope in that earlier work, you could tell the difference between sputum that had cancer cells in it and sputum that did not. And obviously that was quite a breakthrough. We have taken that technology, we own now 51 patents around that diagnostic technology, but we have taken that simple idea and with using antibodies and the porphyrin to label this sample that is a single cell, suspension, we've been able to take them after the labeling process and put the sample through flow cytometry. Flow cytometry has been used for years in the blood area, leukemias and different blood cancers and diseases use flow cytometry. Flow cytometry is, a, is equipment, is an instrument that allows you in a matter of literally minutes 
to look and investigate individual cells in a cancer or in a sample. So for example, in our case, we can look at an average sputum sample of 21 million cells in about 15 minutes and evaluate each and every sample or cell. In doing so, you can imagine the data that comes out of that. And what we've been able to do by building an automated software um, program that we've perfected is to define, identify specific biomarkers in the sputum sample including one of which is, of course, a high fluorescing porphyrin uh, cancer or cells that are cancer cells that have been labeled very highly with this porphyrin. In doing so, we're able then to get a very high specificity and sensitivity. Our, our preliminary results show a sensitivity of 95% and specificity of 89%. Uh, we have a, a, a much larger trial, 180 patients, who are half, or not quite half, actually about 30% of which are cancer patients, and the rest are people at high risk for lung cancer, and we're running the program now, and so we'll have results shortly. But we see this as a, a very, very good way, a very, very good diagnostic, early diagnostic that can help with people who have gone through low-dose CT and have a positive result before they go into uh, more invasive biopsy. Uh, we also see it as eventually a test that will be able to uh, be before low-dose CT. As I said, we have 51 patents. We're in tw uh, covering with coverage through 21 countries, so we'll look at Europe and, and certainly China where we're protected. And we have licensed the technology and we'll start shortly a certification as a CAP CLIA, as a CLIA CAP approved test. Um, our partner is Precision Pathology here in, in San Antonio. So we're very excited. Uh, we're just very, very excited to, uh, to put this into the market. Thank you. Great, thank you, Maria. And, and others, feel free to ask questions, um, but, I, but I have one question. Do you kind of see this, this method as a, a platform for detecting more than just lung cancer? We do, and in fact, we have patents pending on, on that. So dependent on the antibodies that we use, we can start to look at other populations in this the wealth of data that comes from sputum. Uh, and in doing so, we look at developing COPD, asthma, and other lung diseases, the and diagnosis of other lung diseases, with the same, as you think, basic core technology of using sputum with a flow cytometric analysis to find those diseases. But yes, definitely, we see that. Can I say I, just one more thing? We also look at using the same platform with different samples. Um, we started in very preliminary work in prostate and, and bladder cancer to see if indeed this platform can work. I want to make one final point, and that is detection of lung cancer or detection of any cancer at an early stage is very, very difficult. So the technologies that are being developed, I don't see one or another being the sole technology. Instead, I see giving 
physicians the tools by which they can make the best decisions for their patients. So, as I said, with our technology, we see it working with low-dose CT. And, and I think that we have a very strong scientific advisory board that sees the same. It can be a very powerful tool, but I think that physicians want every tool in their toolbox to work. The, the other point, I said I just one more point, but cost becomes a very important uh, consideration. Our test, um, because it's based on flow cytometry, has CPT codes, it has reimbursement. Our reimbursement is about for Medicare, Medicaid is about $370, $380. So it's a quite an affordable test for individuals. So that becomes an important factor too. You have some tests that are quite expensive and that presents, a, it presents difficulties. That's all, thank you. <laughs> Great, Maria, th Maria, thank you for your, for your insights. And moving on from there, would love to have Eric speak to, to EDP. Great, yes. You know, again, thanks for having me on the talk today. <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, EDP Biotech is working on a new blood-based test for the early detection of colorectal cancer and precancerous polyps. We've been in the, sort of the R&D discovery mode for several years and, you know, growing, uh, working towards commercialization. A lot of what Maria just mentioned uh, really resonates with us. We plan to be another tool for physicians to use. As you can see here on this slide, our aim is to drive the correct people to confirmatory colonoscopy not to replace or displace the colonoscopy procedure. It is the gold standard. It will remain the gold standard for the foreseeable future. And, you know, we know that physicians want to uh, essentially detect those patients that have precancerous lesions and the earliest stage cancers and then send them to, to a surgeon where those uh, lesions can be treated or removed or uh, other treatments can be applied. So we see this as a way to, uh, to accomplish three main things. You know, by driving the correct patients to a procedure through a blood test and then getting them into the surgery center when they really need it, we can help detect that cancer early, reduce the overall cost of the entire screening procedure uh, for the health system overall, and then also improve those patient outcomes by driving stage one and stage two cancer patients to treatment uh, and finding the precancerous polyps, stage zero cancers, uh, and having those removed or resected before they ever advance to cancer. You know, Hannah, some of the uh, techniques that you discussed earlier, uh, certainly we include many of those. So we are not a sort of a traditional liquid biopsy, if you will. We like to say that we were in liquid biopsy space before it became sexy to be in liquid biopsy. Uh, that's kind of the new buzzword you've been hearing for the last five or six years. But we really started working on some of this technology. You know, the company's been around since 05 uh, doing research. We decided to focus on protein biomarkers. The reason is, as I mentioned earlier, genetic markers uh, and mutations, we believe that those are more prognostic than diagnostic. You know, it may be good at assessing risk or increased risk of a developing disease, but the protein is actually more indicative of active disease state and you know, telling the physician what's actually happening in the body. 
So that has been our main focus. We've also in recent years begun working with a lot of bioinformaticists, data, data scientists, uh, to incorporate some machine learning, not necessarily artificial intelligence, but uh, machine learning uh, algorithms into the way that we analyze all of this data that we collect on every patient. You know, this helps, I think, obviously researchers, but also the physician to boil down many complex measurements from the blood into a, a very easy to understand and interpret result. Uh, is this patient positive or negative? And we can really take a comprehensive view of cancer biology, look at many different systems that are happening that all interplay uh, and really, you know, measure all of these various proteins from all these different systems, combine that data, and produce a very easy to understand result for the physician. We have decided to work alongside collaborators in European health systems for colorectal cancer early detection. And the reason is that many of the EU member states have already implemented organized colon cancer screening. They are a little bit further ahead than we are here in the United States in terms of surveying and screening you know, their entire populations, uh, age 45 to 75. Some countries are still surveying patients age 50 and above. But they are using for population-based screening a, a inexpensive stool test that looks for hidden blood in the stool, fecal occult blood. This test is very specific, high specificity, but sensitivity uh, has some issues. Uh, and you know, even though it is highly specific, when you're surveying 18 million or 20 million people every year, it still can lead to a high number of false positives. Uh, so our goal with our blood test is to, again, identify those patients that have the earliest stage lesions to help reduce the false positive rate, thus the, the follow-on costs from these organized screening programs and really drive those correct patients who need the colonoscopy into the surgery center while reducing the endoscopy burden to the health system. So that's been our focus. We recently completed a uh, nearly 2,000 patient research study with one of our collaborators. Uh, we will pr be presenting that uh, at the end of the month to uh, at the EDRN conference, the Early Detection Research Network conference. That's part of the NCI-NIH. And, um, you know, obviously we, we uh, look forward to continuing to develop this technology into a final product and launching this into the market where it can really help patients and give a physician an additional tool in their tool belt um, to combat cancer. Great. Thank you, Eric. And, and one, one follow-up question that I kind of have, you, you mentioned earlier that, that one of the limitations of tests such, of Col such as Cologuard is that insurance may not cover screenings after you've, re re may not cover um, colonoscopy after you've received, already received a screening. How do you kind of approach, I guess, kind of payers in the United States with this kind of blood test? We're beginning to have those discussions right now with insurers such as Blue Cross Blue Shield, CMS, of course, uh, heavily involved in this paradigm. As I mentioned, though, you know, our focus for the last several years has been the EU. Uh, those organized screening programs are, are typically organized at the regional or at the nationwide level uh, with their quote-unquote federal health system, national health systems. And, you know, we make the health economics argument to them that, you know, essentially all of their 
positive patients are being referred to colonoscopy, they are experiencing that endoscopy burden, and so this test should be able to uh, alleviate that. You know, but again, in the United States, it's going to be slightly different positioning, slightly different reimbursement model, and we are having those discussions right now with the insurers and with CMS. Great. Th thank you, Eric. Next, I'd like to have um, Chad kind of speak to Koyos. Chad, if you could also give a little background on yourself since we kind of missed hearing about you in, in the beginning. You know, as I mentioned in the kind of comments just a few minutes ago, we're, you know, we're an artificial intelligence software, so non-invasive, back to the theme that you mentioned at the outset, Hannah, and early detection. And it was, was commented earlier, detecting and finding cancer is extremely difficult. The best of the best physicians that are looking at and evaluating a mammography in conjunction with an ultrasound will miss cancers, will miss them early, will eventually find them. Unfortunately, oftentimes it's too late. So what Kios does, Kios is the Greek Titan God of wisdom, foresight, and intellect. And we are second opinion right now, FDA cleared to analyze and interpret ultrasound images of breast lesions, and we have thyroid lesions in the lab, and we are seeking CE marks. Uh, all those processes are in place, so we're expanding into Europe. We're probably, as of this moment, I think in seven different countries around the, the world, um, adding new countries every few weeks as we deploy our software. So that second opinion proves to be immensely helpful to catch more cancer, and also, as you mentioned earlier, address the issues and cost and anxiety and complications associated with avoidable biopsies. And so what do the numbers look like when I mentioned, you know, physicians missing cancers? Um, the best of the best will miss anywhere from six or seven cancers per hundred presented to them. And as you mentioned in sensitivity and specificity, sensitivity being picking out the cancers and getting cancer right, and then specificity being getting benign right. So we see in the studies that we've performed anywhere from one to six additional cancers found per hundred, which is just phenomenally motivating and exciting. The nice thing about using software to do this is the conventional wisdom of catching more cancer, meaning you have to biopsy more tissue, you can actually optimize and you can train a system to get better at both, at catching cancer and catching benign. So in catching benign, we allow physicians who typically are biopsying at the rate of, you know, 80% of those tissue samples come back benign. We're impacting that with a, in a significant order of magnitude, roughly 30%. So we're seeing significant reductions in avoidable treatment in, ter in terms of biopsies while simultaneously increasing cancer detection rate. Great. Thank you, Chad. And kind of a follow-up. When you're kind of looking at doing a kind of software solution, what are what are kind of the the major challenges that you you face with adoption? Yeah, sure. So there's a lot in healthcare, a lot in the media, and certainly when you zoom in in the particular areas, I'm sure everyone on this call will say that there's you know probably new journals and chapters just dedicated to artificial intelligence. So we sit on just vast, massive amounts of data, which we can now process much more quickly. As I mentioned before, we have half a million ultrasound images of breast lesions. We have about three and a half, 350,000 images of thyroid nodules. 
So, you know, imagine that type of experience at your fingertips. You know, the most experienced physician, you know, you want him or her analyzing because they've seen things, you know, thousands of times. Well, we've seen things hundreds of thousands of times. So the challenge is acquiring sufficient, accurate quality data to begin with, to be able to plug into models and perform at or better than the best of the best. But that's only one piece of the puzzle is the math inside. How do you get that math just as you would a drug or some other form of treatment or diagnosis to where it needs to be? And where we need to be is in the exam room with the patient or in the reading room with the radiologist. So another step, we have, we have literally parallel software development teams, one working on algorithms and one building software to embed just as you would have you know, spell check analyzing as you type our software has to be embedded into the radiological workflow so that it's right there at the point of time that the physician needs that additional information. So we've partnered with GE. We deploy on their AI-enabled ultrasound scanner. So at the point of care, there's an intelligent diagnosis supported by our software. We've partnered with, there's a lot of companies that provide storage what are called PAC systems, picture archiving and communication systems where all of our images reside. And we embed into their viewer, into their workstation. So any radiologist sitting in a reading room can access our software as part of their normal diagnostic procedure. We also interpret that and we provide a recommended care pathway based on what we're seeing. So we're trying to increase accuracy and efficiency at the same time, because if we slow down the physician, they won't use it. And so we have to address both sides of that. So the challenges are both getting the data, embedding it in the workflow, and actually speeding up a physician, and then proving that it works. Great. Uh, thank you, Chad. And I, I kind of want to take this, this moment to ask an, another question. And this kind of goes, goes out to all three of you or, or anyone on the call. So something that we've kind of seen recently is NCI released these kinds of match basket trials where they worked rather than than looking at location specific cancer, they worked to kind of group patients based on their kind of genomic testing and, and what pathways that cancer followed rather than the location. How do you think that screening tools will adapt or react to this kind of trend? given that a lot of screening tools are very kind of location specific. Do, do you want me to take that? Sure. So I think the, the work that you're discussing really has to do with treatment and less so with, with diagnostics. And it's important for treatment and drugs because you can have a crossover of one drug if it's, as you think of it, attacking one genetic malfunction or, or one change in the genome <clears throat> from cancers to cancer. And I do think it's a very important approach uh, that we should be, be doing. I think in the uh, early stage, it's very difficult to get genetic testing in that very early stage. And I applaud people who are working in it, and I hope that indeed that, that we can do that. But most of the liquid biopsies now are moving to a definition stage, meaning that they are moving to a stage where a cancer has been found and there needs to be specific what we call personal treatment or, or specific treatment that can really help. And therefore, those liquid biopsies that 
that define and identify specific genetic markers are, are best used, at least so far, in that personal treatment space. And I think that's where what you're speaking of and the trials you're speaking of, that they're, they're looking at, okay, what if one malfunction is causing, an, uh, is the trigger uh, for a number of cancers. So that, that's very important. I'll tell you, in lung cancer, it has a very, the cancer itself has a very high mutational frequency. And what that means is that it is, it is one of the cancers that has many, many more malfunctions or, or mutations, genetic mutations. So it's very difficult early on for early stage to find lung cancer with a genetic test. So there's a, they're, they're different. They're going to be different. I do think that we have to work with the tools that we have now and the, the advantage with a diagnostic that is organ specific is that you know that there's that tumor in that, that organ. So you may find a genetic mutation that you've defined as triggering for cancer, but you don't know where you're still going to need that full body scan and, and to determine where you have, have the cancer. To, to follow up on that, you know, I, I absolutely would, would agree and echo everything that was just said. And to add to that more specifically for colorectal cancer, you know, many of the carcinomas start off as an adenoma, as a precancerous polyp uh, for this disease specifically. And by definition, a polyp is not cancer. So it will typically not give off the same types of uh, either mutation signatures or uh, protein signatures that you would see in an early stage cancer. So when you're looking at sort of the liquid biopsy space right now, uh, you see a lot of these pan-cancer tests that are good at detecting perhaps esophageal or stomach cancer or breast because there is a lot of overlap between those mutation signatures and later stage colon cancer. But these are typically not as high-performing, not as sensitive to those precancerous polyps. Um, I think, Hannah, your example of Cologuard, you know, demonstrates that pretty well. You know, their sensitivity to cancer was 90-plus percent, 92 percent but high-risk adenomas and medium-risk uh, adenomas is down in the 60% range. And so, you know, we've taken a little bit of a different approach at EDP Biotech to really focus on those precancerous polyps, even though I think much of the liquid biopsy space is going after these pan-cancer signatures to capture, you know, multiple types of more advanced cancer somewhere in the body. Yeah, and, and kind of a follow-up question, what do you think that the challenges will be for these kind of solutions that are that are working to detect multiple cancers or be a pan-cancer solution? Yeah, I think we've already identified, you know, the, the tumor location is one of the biggest drawbacks and one of the heaviest criticisms when you're looking at liquid biopsy. Uh, as Maria, you know, absolutely correctly put it, that makes treatment extremely difficult to target the treatment if you know this patient has cancer somewhere, but where is it? Now you've got to, you know, give them radiation or go in and actually find that, um, find that tumor before you can begin to treat it in the specific organ. So I think that that's probably one of the big drawbacks and, and certainly the main criticism we hear. I think, too, I've got to tell you, I've read those studies that um, have come out, and they're, they're, <laughs> I think that, that 
<clears throat> there have been studies on detection, on the ability to detect um, mutations. And so I think a lot more work has to be done to, to find now to, to find out if, if indeed this, this is going to work. I do think that there are certain cancers. I see more advancements in liver cancer right now with uh, the genetic tests. Um, at least with the early uh, work that's done, the early studies that, that have come out. And so that's very interesting to me, but it's not going to be with all. But, you know, it's a, you're really talking about Grail and a couple others uh, that has several billion dollars in that space looking for that. So I applaud their science and, and moving forward and we'll, we'll see what we find. I think we've so focused on the genetic marker and we need to broaden our approach as to as to how we detect cancer. And I I certainly think with imaging that I applaud what you're doing and with the, in the imaging field because that can uh, that can certainly help a, a, a great deal. You're only as good as as the as the radiologist reading your X-rays or the pathologist that's reading mm -hmm. your slides. So we need to we need to improve that. It's all works together. It's all synergistic, and it's all very exciting. It's a very very large market. So you're and you have I know from our studies, our market studies, you have a, a great need in the diagnostic space. Great. Well, thank you everyone for your insight. I'm going to kind of move forward to, to, to looking at, at some of these solutions that you have kind of so aptly pointed out. In, in liquid biopsy and biomarker detection in general, there's, there's just a huge influx of, of, of different capital. But what we're also seeing is, I think, a, a great variety of techniques kind of going into, on top of liquid biopsy, different methods to kind of um, collect samples. Some that I that I kind of wanted to point out is um, first off, Prime Genomics. They detect breast cancer by evaluating the thermodynamics of saliva in a thermometer. Um, so this is really interesting, having the opportunity to to use saliva as 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 kind of a, a detection method. Um, they raised a five million dollar Series A in 2018 with a post valuation of 15 million um, with Digital DX Ventures. Um, another interesting company is Genoscopy. They offer cancer screening using the, the stool-derived RNA transcripts, um, and they really are working to, to screen for colorectal cancer and guide treatment for, for GI disease. And they raised a 7.95 million Series A in, in 2019, led by Cultivation Capital. Um, another interesting one that kind of piqued my interest is, is actually Alstone Medical. They're using biomarkers found in the breath to detect cancer um, infection and other inflammatory diseases. Um, and this, is, this was interesting to me because of just the ease of, of that type of application, breath. Um, but they raised $50 million in, in 2018 in a later stage deal led by Horizons Ventures for a total raised of, of about $74 million. Um, so a lot of work being done in, in that kind of biomarker area. Another area that, that I'm seeing a lot of work in general is kind of a strong bend in, in AI and imaging. Um, and when I kind of looked at a lot of the companies, they all had a, a pretty strong tilt towards, towards breast cancer as the area that they were working to build solutions. Um, some example com companies include Huron Medical Technologies. 
they actually detect breast cancer earlier using um, deep learning to kind of overcome some of the major challenges in, in mammograms. They raised a, a $22 million Series A led by Atomico in, in 2019. Uh, another interesting company was Clarity Imaging. They develop uh, computer-aided breast diagnostic insights for MRI itself, which is a little bit further down the, the diagnostics chain, but, but, but does provide screening before biopsy. And they raised recently, actually, in, in January 2020, an, an undisclosed amount. Another interesting one was Niramai. They're actually a, a, a breast screening tool and software that, that is really aimed towards low-cost portable screening. So they actually created their own portable screening tool that uses thermal imaging and machine learning algorithms to kind of reliably detect breast cramps detect breast cancer, um, and they're based out of India and actually raised a, recently raised a, a 6.5 million Series A with Pi Ventures in 2019. Um, and, and kind of like Maria was talking about earlier, there, there's been a lot of, of money placed in these genomic solutions, foundation of course, um, completing their acquisition, being acquired by Roche in 2018 for $2.4 billion really indicates kind of an interest in, in solutions to, to define cancer. And then the, the, the deals that are really gaining a, a, a lot of financing recently are, are these companies like Grail and Thrive that are working to provide kind of pan-cancer solutions. But they've, they've recently raised pretty sizable amounts for that type of solution. Some thoughts uh, about opportunities and risks moving forward. Of course, there's, there's a really high clinical need for screening, and it's really important that we get early decision on, on how to kind of treat or make patients proceed. Beyond that, there's, there's an opportunity for a lot of this kind of sampling technology to really kind of screen and detect cancers, as well as, as opportunity for, I think, some back-end bioinformatics to really capture and track kind of the, the, the informatics that comes along with all of that screening information. Um, and the, the market is big enough that, you know, there, there are lots of opportunities to make multiple investments within it. And I think something important moving forward will be to kind of look at, kind of like, um, like Eric was mentioning, this kind of idea of looking at combinations of tests to help overcome some of the challenges in specificity and sensitivity really looking at, at how can we create better clinical outcomes when we're doing these larger screening tests across populations. Some of the, the risk factors that we really should look at, at considering is that we really need to avoid undesirable screening outcomes, such as overdiagnosis and, and, and false positives. In addition, when we look at solutions that are, that are trying to um, provide pan-cancer detection, we really need to make sure that people are able to test and validate that their targets work in the specific populations that will use the screening. And then I think another risk factor will be kind of looking at, you know, kind of like all of you have kind of mentioned earlier, is how will reimbursement compare to conventional detection and, and, and how can we really capture that, that screening market? But otherwise, talk, had some great conversations with companies today. Um, does anyone have anything else that they, they'd like to add? Just thank you very much for this opportunity.
Perfect. Well, we're uh, a little over time here. I want to thank everyone for joining the call today. It's been a great discussion. Um, and to the, the, to the solution providers, congratulations on all of your progress. It was, it was really great to hear about your solutions. So thank you all. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. Thank you.